Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am Andrew Gutman, along with my co-host Beth Feely. We are two accidental activist parents who spoke up about what was going on in our children's schools. And now we talk to other people that care as much about schools as we do. And we have uh, one of those guests with us today, Stephanie Soroki de Garcia. Stephanie is co-founder and managing director of Seton Education Partners, which she helped launch in 2009 to expand opportunities for parents in underserved communities to choose an academically excellent, character-rich, and for those who seek it, a vibrantly Catholic education for their children. Stephanie launched and for over five years directed the Philanthropy Roundtables K-12 education programs, where she spearheaded a series of conferences, strategy sessions, and publications on breakthroughs in education philanthropy. She co-wrote a guide called Saving America's Urban Catholic Schools, a guide for donors, and also served on the Strategic Planning Committee for the Archdiocese of New York's school system. Uh, Stephanie was a Teach for America Corps member in California, where she taught high school English, she is also the proud mother of two children. So Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today on Take Back Our Schools. Andrew and Beth, really happy to be here. Um, I think your podcast is sorely needed in this country and the timing is, is, is exactly right. Well, thank you. We, we, we think so too. So, so let's look, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of start at the beginning. What got you interested in education and education policy? Um, yeah, I, I, when I, I, I am an under, I was an undergrad at the University of California, Berkeley, and I took an, a course on urban education and they showed a video of Teach for America in its early days. And uh, it was actually really laughable. Um, the teachers had no idea what they were doing. Um, you could see how much they were struggling and the uh, not so humble, um, younger version of myself said, oh, I could do that. And I would be way better than, than these teachers on this video. Um, right. And I was assigned to the second toughest high school in Oakland, California. Um, and as you might imagine, um, schools in Oakland are dysfunctional. And I I didn't lead a, a sheltered life growing up. I, um, my parents are immigrants. They owned a liquor store. I was working at that store at the age of, of 10 all throughout um, my, my, um, my early years and even worked there, you know, on summer vacations from college. But when I taught at Fremont High School, I, I frankly could not believe that in this country, we allowed children to attend schools like the one where I taught. And I, I really thought if parents knew what was happening to their children um, in, in, in schools like where I taught, you know, that they would be so angry, they would be rioting, they'd want to burn down the school. And so, um, you know, I, I had majored in rhetoric and my mom always asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, mom, don't worry. I'm going to go to law school after this. And my experience in Teach for America made me decide, no, I, I want to understand why our schools are so, um, um, so poor in underserved communities and what I might be able to do to, to make them better from a, a more systemic perspective. So um, I went to the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard um, and studied public policy. I studied 
both education policy and also family policy. I was interested in both um, both of those um, areas and uh, spent a little bit of time working at the federal level on um, the No Child Left Behind Act um, and then got this really fascinating um, job launching um, the Philanthropy Roundtable's K-12 education programs. And the way the roundtable worked was um, looking at breakthroughs across the country in urban education and helping philanthropists think through how they could grow and scale those breakthroughs. And so I had a front seat to the burgeoning charter school movement. I was asked in, in 2008 to organize a meeting for, for philanthropists in New York City on the question of who will save America's urban Catholic schools. And frankly, although I was raised Catholic and I, I have a, uh, an older brother who's a priest and a, I had had another brother in seminary, I did not know um, the world of Catholic education. And so I said, well, I, I've got to do a bunch of research. And I, I scoured the country trying to look for um, successes. And what I learned was that Catholic schools had this extraordinary history of serving um, the underserved and doing it incredibly well, um, especially new immigrants, um, and that they were shutting down en masse, and that the original financial model for Catholic education, which was, um, uh, which was, was pinned on, um, on the, the free labor of uh, religious sisters and, and brothers, um, that that no longer worked because the, the, because there was a vocation crisis in the United States of America. And so the church could no longer offer um, an education that was, you know, close to free to, to families and underserved communities. And so I partnered with a, a man named Scott Hamilton, um, not the figure skater, but um, a man right. who had um, identified the original KIPP charter schools, which are um, now over 200 schools strong and we decided it was it was it was it was the height of the uh the great recession so as you might imagine it was it was a pretty awful time to try to start a new venture um but i felt and and scott felt called to try to find um a solution to um the shuttering of our catholic schools and so um we got started. There were a handful of, of, of brave philanthropists who were willing to make a bet on, on our ideas. And we've been in operation for about 13 years. Um, and um, it's been fascinating work that I think has made a, a huge difference for a lot well, of children and families. We'll, we'll spend, you know, we'll, I think that's what mostly what we'll talk about. But if you don't mind, I have a question. If we can go back your days yeah. at Teach for America back in back in Oakland, California. So you're here. You are, you know, recent graduate, early 20s. I'm guessing. Yeah, 22. What was can, if you could remember? What was your diagnosis for why the schools were failing so bad? Uh, low expectations for for underserved children of color was number one. So it just was not a deep seated and held belief that um, that our children could achieve at high levels. Um, and that drives really kind of how teaching and learning happens. 
Um, and secondly, just no accountability whatsoever. No accountability to parents, no accountability to the government, no accountability to the public. Um, and I think those were the two biggest drivers of, of, of the systemic failure. Could, was there a difference with what you were doing, as, you know, as in the Teach for America, as, as different than what, you know, the regular teachers were doing? Yes. I mean, I, first of all, your first year of teaching is, is, is pretty awful. Um, I was much better than the typical first year teacher, um, but I still wasn't good enough that in year one, um, given what, what my children needed. Um, you know, what Teach for America's theory was, was that um, we needed to recruit a different kind of person to the teaching profession. We needed to recruit people who were achievement oriented and who were leaders, and, as opposed to people who just wanted to help others. Um, they needed to be books and, you know, people who knew how to set ambitious goals, people who knew how to build plans to help achieve those goals. And so I was a different kind of leader. I graduated um, sum cum laude um, from Berkeley. And, you know, I'd been a hall coordinator, which was kind of the highest position in the, in the residential life um, arena. And so, and I, I held other leadership positions on college campus. And so they were really looking for people who were leaders. And um, that is, that's not, that was not the typical profile of, of a teacher. And I don't think it is still to this day outside of, of organizations like Teach for America or um, the high-performing charter school networks across the country. So how were you perceived uh, by the students when you came into these schools? Because you were, you were teaching in an area where you were not necessarily from. Like, were you able to quickly develop rapport with them or were you... Were you kind of treated as an I outsider? Was, I, you know, I my my students didn't know how old I was when they would ask me, "How old are you, Miss Soroki?" I would say, "I'm." Um, um, so they, um, you know, they 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 kind of thought I was older than I really was. I wanted them to think that, and I remember um, I really had to to not be myself in many ways when I was teaching. I, you know, the first day of class, um, I I opened it by saying. Um, my name is Miss Soroki. That's Miss Soroki. It's not Mrs. Soroki. It's not Miss Soroki. It's Ms. Soroki. Welcome to English 10. So I, and I, I did it with a completely straight face. And I remember my, I had a, I was, I was in a, um, in a, I wasn't in a real classroom. I was actually in a converted garage. Um, I remember when I walked into that classroom uh, on every desk, on almost every desk, and on almost every wall, there was um, graffiti that said 187 Soto. And 187 means murder. And Soto was the teacher who had this classroom the previous year. Wow. And so I was walking into this, this you know, converted classroom, um, knowing that the previous year students had been writing death threats to the teacher and that no one had taken the time to actually clean up the graffiti. And so How did you, who told yeah. you that, by the way, was it a student or was the administration? I knew 187 because um, when I was my first job at Berkeley, I was um, I worked for the UCPD as a as a night escort. Actually, so I would, 
I would walk students, you know, who, who were felt unsafe. And I ended up learning all of the police codes. So I knew what 187 was. Um, I was a little bit shocked. Um, and I made the decision to, um, cover every wall to wipe down every desk so that on day one, when students walked in, it, it actually looked like a classroom. And I remember the principal walking in saying, oh my gosh, uh-huh. what did you do here? And I had, um, what was interesting is I had, I had tried so many times to get the district to paint my classroom because I'd essentially put butcher paper on every wall um, and, and they wouldn't do it. So um, between my first and second years, I, I had my students come in choose a paint color they chose lavender which was kind of funny um and and paint my classroom walls and we just did it without asking for permission because the district wasn't responding and so i will say that before i i start with the students um you know uh in the first week i found out that the teachers the veteran teachers had a pool going um um and and they were um betting on which first year teacher would quit (laughs) so I mean if you think about kind of what the culture was at the school that that was what the teachers were doing I mean you have a a a a degraded culture and I remember you know I you know I looked young I I kind of had a baby face but um you know I, I pretended with my students and I was really tough I I um you know, my students had not read novels. I, I taught 10th and 11th grade English. They had not read novels. They did not write interpretive essays. And, you know, I, I, I loved reading. Um, I actually wanted to be a math teacher, but I, my rhetoric degree was interpreted as a potential English um, teacher. But, um, you know, I, um, I starting on day one, you know, I, I said, we're going to read novels. We're going to interpret those novels. We're going to write about those novels. You're going to leave this classroom knowing how to, how to read, interpret, um, you know, advanced texts. And so we, we read all kinds of books and we discussed them and we um, wrote about them. And we, there was a, um, a, a diagnostic that the district would um, give out and it was, you know, uh, interpreting writing and, and writing an essay. Um, and my kids were scoring, um, it, you know, the highest score was a six. My kids were scoring um, ones and twos at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, they were scoring threes and fours. And so I knew that you could, even as a first year teacher, I could help drive results in the classroom. Um, but a big part of that was um, not being, I, I couldn't be myself. I mean, I was just naturally a very friendly person. I I just made the decision that learning for, for children was more important than um, than being myself. So really, really quick, before it. I want to let Beth move on to what you're doing now, was there a 187 Soroki? No, I did. I will say I had one student who, um, who had um, mental health issues who right before Thanksgiving, um, I had given the students my cell phone. I said, look, I'm giving you my cell phone because I don't want you to have any excuses for why you aren't able to kind of do the work at home that you need to do. So if you need to call me, call me. Um, and I did have one death threat by a student. I knew who it was. And I remember coming home for, for Thanksgiving. My parents, you know, when I did Teach for America in 1998, 
it wasn't this popular, well-regarded mm-hmm. program. It was nobody knew, nobody had heard of it. And my, my immigrant parents um, kind of said, I don't think you should do this. This is a terrible idea. And I remember coming home and this is how good my parents are. I, I told the mom, dad, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to do this. I just got a death threat. And they said, no, you, you made a commitment. And, and this is, I have to tell you, you know, when parents, this is parents yeah. holding yeah. their own Which, children to high expectations, right? You made, you made, a, and, and, and that was, you know, their, their decision, you know, for both of them to say that to me and their decision to say, no, you made a right. commitment. You have to see it so, through. And uh, absolutely. That was really I mean, so it sounds, me. you know, clearly having firsthand experience in the classroom had to have very much informed how you went about forming Seton education partners and lessons like that, that your parents taught you, which yes. you could then apply to the parents of the kids that you yeah. would come to serve. So could you tell us how Seton education partners was formed, the types of schools that you run and really how they, how they differ from other schools in that space? So Scott Hamilton had worked for the founders of the gap. He did some federal political work in education and then worked for the founders of the gap and um, had identified the two original KIPP schools, Knowledge is Power Program schools, um, and had developed a plan to replicate those schools across the country. And he led that effort for the first five years. And um, at the time that we were forming, the um, Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. had made the decision to shut down, I think it was seven inner city Catholic schools because um, they couldn't continue to support them financially. And what they decided to do was to um, put in in place of those schools kind of character-rich charter schools. And charter schools are privately operated public schools. Mm -hmm. They receive public dollars and they have to be open to every child. Um, But they have a ton of autonomy when it comes to their curriculum, their culture, um, their, their, their routines and... Um, and so what was, was interesting about that effort was that there was, there was no, um, no effort made to find a way to, to continue to do evangelization and catechesis for the, for the children in that community. Yeah, I was going to say I, that you probably couldn't, you can't be overtly religious when you're taking public dollars, but not so was, during the, not during the school day. Okay. Um, but we came up with the idea of doing a secular school day that was inspired by the tradition of Catholic education. So a classical school that celebrated the best of Western tradition that had a deep focus on developing virtue in children um, and pairing it with an optional daily Catholic faith formation program. That was funded by those charter school dollars. Are we talking? So, about- I mean, I can talk a little bit about the funding, but um, let me give a little bit of context. Um, the Archdiocese of New York had been heavily subsidizing their inner city Catholic schools, and they had made the decision to shut down in, in 2011 um, over 60 of those schools, and they were mostly inner city schools serving serving the poor. And um, a bunch of people had asked Cardinal Dolan, you know, what about charter schools? And he said, you know what? I don't know enough about them. I need to learn more. And I 
I had developed this relationship with the superintendent of Catholic schools because he had asked me to serve on their strategic planning committee. Um, and we had done a case study on um, the conversion of these, these, these Catholic schools in, in Washington, D.C. and the charter schools. And so I came in and I, I briefed the cardinal. It was the cardinal and all of his auxiliary bishops, his general counsel, his CFO, and a major philanthropist of the diocese. And what I said to the Cardinal was, I don't think the church um, does well with innovation. Um, and, but I do think there's an opportunity to partner with an external organization and to, to build a, um, a, class, a classical Catholic inspired charter school and to pair it with daily Catholic faith formation. And what I said to him was, you know, 95% of American school children attend public schools. And they are supposed to get their formation, their faith formation from their parents. But if they don't get it from their parents, the backstop is, is what's called CCD or, or catechism Sunday school, essentially. Um, and unfortunately, Sunday school is, is, is a mixed bag in terms of quality. I told him that my mom, you know, who had a son in seminary, another son who was a priest, would teach CCD to... Um, to confirmation candidates. So, so, you know, 16 year olds and she would come home and she would be devastated. So this is a woman who ran a liquor store, raised six kids, did a, a, an amazing job, was a, was a young immigrant who had, didn't even graduate from high school. And she would come home kind of defeated. And I, I would say, mom, it's not your fault. No one's taught you classroom management 101. No one's taught you how to teach today's kids. And I would try to give her tips based on my teaching experience. And what I said to the Cardinal was, look, we have the most beautiful and rich faith in the world. And we do such a poor job of communicating that faith to the, to, to the younger generation. But what if, what if instead of one time per week, like Sunday school, kids were getting formation five times per week? And what if instead of having a, a purely volunteer core of teachers, you had well-trained teachers who knew how to teach today's kids and they were on fire for the faith. I said, don't you think we could show what's possible with CCD? And he was enamored of the idea. Mm-hmm. And I will say that no one else in that room except for the philanthropist wanted the Cardinal to pursue this, but he did. And he had courage. And he cared about underserved communities. He felt he was devastated that they had to close so many schools. And he said, let's try this. And if it's good, we'll do more of it. And is that what's resulted in the Bria network today? Yes. So, so our, our, one of our school models, so we've, we've um, launched three different school models um, and all of them intend to both be kind of vibrantly Catholic for, for the families who choose that and to be um, academically excellent, but especially to be financially stable. And so the first model we actually launched wasn't Bria. Bria means shine in Spanish. Um, and shine is actually one of the most frequently found words in the Bible. Um, but we launched um, the nation's first blended learning school. And blended learning combines um, uh, adaptive computer technology 
um, with small group instruction. I mean, there's, there are a lot of different ways to operate blended learning schools, but we would do small group instruction with adaptive technology. And what we did was we replicated this model in 15 schools across nine cities. And we were able to, in a declining Catholic school market, increase enrollments across our network by over 20% um, and dramatically improve academic outcomes for kids. And so we did that model and then we, and then we launched BRIA and we replicated mm -hmm. BRIA. So we have six campuses of BRIA in the Bronx right now. And we partnered with the diocese um, to launch these schools. We, one of the unexpected kind of fruits of BRIA is you know, we, you know, we're serving kindergartners through eighth graders, and we just assumed that the Catholic families attending our school um, would have baptized their children as babies, because that's what Catholics do. Um, and what we found is that wasn't happening, that many of the families that we served, um, you know, there, there, there was a lot of integrity in this. They felt like they weren't in good relationship with the church. And so how could they baptize their own kids? And so in, in, um, in 10 years, we baptized two and over 240 kids, um, which is kind of extraordinary. <laughs> um, and, well, I mean, yeah. especially for the just being in the charter space, very unusual, but it sounds like you've been able to combine kind of the best of both worlds where you're doing high academics, you know, high level academics and accountability, but then with this faith component component outside of school, but that is ministering to a need uh, that is within these families. I mean, yes. It's, and, it's, and it's I will amazing. say that um, our authorizer, so the authorizer is the, is the state entity that gives you permission mm -hmm. to, um, to launch a charter school and then holds you accountable for results. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, we were, we were really upfront about what we were trying to do. We shared our legal um, advice. We worked with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And then we also worked for, uh, worked with another lawyer to look at, you know, what really were the um, church state lines that we, that we couldn't cross. Um, and we were really diligent about making sure that not only were we transparent with the state, but that um, we were following the law. Now, speaking, uh, speaking of the law, I know like now there's a there's a cap on charter schools. Uh, was that an issue when you launched this or has that been an issue with that not was being not able to expand the network? That was not an issue when we launched. Um, well, I think during the time that we originally launched, there was a raise in the cap. So this um, state charter laws are different depending on the state you're in. Right. And in New York, there's a cap. Not all states have a cap. Yeah, no, I, sorry. I, I should have said I was specifically referring to New York. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in New York, there is a cap and, and we can't launch any more schools in New York. So all of our efforts to grow our model are outside of the state of New York. We, um, is there more have, demand in New York? I mean, would you, if there wasn't this cap, I mean, could you expand this even further? In there New is tremendous demand, not just in New York City, but across the state. So we've had the Archdiocese of New York, um, and other dioceses in the state, um, the Diocese of Brooklyn. Diocese of Brooklyn took us on a tour of five of their schools and said, look, we don't think we're going to be able to sustain these. Can you guys take them over? And we said, no. Um, I mean, these are like huge, beautiful buildings. Um, and we just said, like, we, we legally, we can't get any more schools. Um, and, you know, there's, there's obviously political battles being fought and, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the charter school movement has been really successful in New York in part because there's been bipartisan support. And so 
um, people on the political side of the charter school movement have been very effective at getting Democrats who are serving constituents whose schools are really crappy um, mm-hmm. to, to advocate for more choices for their, for their constituents. And um, a, a couple of years before the pandemic started, um, there was a, a turnover of those, of those Democratic candidates. They, they lost elections. Um, and so it's become more difficult to, to raise that cap. And yeah, go ahead. I would imagine, yeah, contentious. And perhaps these are um, some of the same people that are, you know, driving some of this influence of what I'll just call kind of a, a social justice um, veneer, you know, that is, that is kind of raging in our culture. And I'm wondering, are you finding that you are also being in the crosshairs of kind of those movements um, where, cause it sounds like you've got a model that holds kids to account, holds families accountable. I imagine that your, your educational results reflect that, but then you get this other influence that's kind of um, become prominent in education that is kind of more, you know, grievance oriented, excuse oriented. And yeah. are you, are you finding that challenging or have you remained immune from that? Um, I would not say that we've remained immune. I think, um, you know, there, there are two things kind of there's, there are the political wins, but there are also what our schools of education are producing by way of teacher talent. And, um, unfortunately, um, schools of education are a complete waste of time and money. Um, they are not geared towards teaching you how to be an excellent teacher. I think there are a few exceptions. So for example, the Relay Graduate School of Education, which was founded by um, three um, very high-performing charters in New York, they do things very differently and we, we, um, we rely on them. But those are also, and I will say, you know, had you asked me a while ago, I would have said, you know, I'm a social justice warrior. But that term has really been co-opted, unfortunately. Um, you would have, can I just, I mean, what, I'm, I'm guessing what you meant by that is that you cared for all kids to have good schools in all environments. Is that? Yes. What we, I, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. I think no one will argue with, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I, and honoring parents is the first educators of their children, um, which is very Catholic, but is also very American. And unfortunately, you know, in this country, if you have money, you have choice. And if you don't, you don't. And and the schools that you are relegated to based on your zip code um, are, you know, there are some bright spots, but not many, frankly. And, you know, we 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 partnered with um with a um another kind of new startup charter network to to launch a high school. Now in, in the area where we are launching this high school, four percent of children are graduating from high school, college ready. Think about that number. We'll be right back with more from Take Back Our Schools. Hey, James Lilacs here, one of the co-hosts of the Ricochet Flagship Podcast. If you missed it, well, it's still around at ricochet.com. And if you say, oh, what are you guys talking about now? Well, we talked to Lonnie Chin, who's going to be the next California state controller, we hope. And John Yu, of course, brilliant guy about everything that's going to be happening in the Supreme Court. So great conversation. Oh, yes, we all of a sudden fixed Twitter for Elon Musk as well. That's the Ricochet Podcast. Join us, why don't you?
Are you having a problem recruiting teachers, I guess, when just getting back to your comment about the ed schools, or do you look for teachers with different credentials? Um, like what, we, what are you we, finding in terms of talent? Yeah. So I think right now everyone's having challenges on the talent front. Um, I think COVID kind of wreaked havoc on the teaching profession. It's been a brutal set of years and believe it or not, the year after the first year of COVID was harder for teach. The year we got back, was actually harder for teachers because kids were coming in and you know they hadn't received anything by way of a decent education for a year and that you know that really hurt them and so they were coming in with a lot of different behavioral challenges that we hadn't tipped, that we hadn't seen mm-hmm. um previously but but this year is much much better and, and 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 if you look at kind of the academic results from last year I mean they're devastating and we've and yes, and the if we, if we, scores that came out amazing. Yeah, the NAEP scores that came out, the nation's report card. And um, unfortunately, we don't know how to how to how to catch kids up at that pace. We just don't know how to do that. And we've done a bunch of things, including summer school and um, high dosage tutoring. And we're seeing some results, but I, I don't think we're going to be able to catch kids up the way they need to be caught up. There's going to be a generation of kids that that are completely screwed frankly especially the kids the little ones because right. you know and i think about i think about my son so i have an 8 year old and he was supposed to learn to read during um covid's first first year and while my daughter was 2 years older and a girl and 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 i don't know if you've addressed this but schools are are built for girls not for boys and um and and doing it remotely was harder for boys than it was for girls, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't learn how to read that year. And so my husband and I paid out of pocket to get him a tutor um, to teach him how to read. And, you know, we kind of talked about the fact that, wow, um, you know, so the school where we send our, our children to is a charter school that is mixed income. So half of the kids qualify for the federal meals program, which is a, a standard indicator of poverty. And, you know, we just said, wow, we wish we could pay for tutoring for all of these first graders who just didn't learn how to read. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a travesty. Didn't have to happen. Um, there were people who were fighting for it not to happen. They, they, they didn't succeed because mm-hmm. the media was so one-sided during COVID. Um, that reasonable reasonable minds just just didn't didn't we get didn't have to. It. Have I mean, seen? I was in New York. We did. We you know we we I was in, involved in a number of groups trying to fight keep you know open schools keep schools open and the, the numbers yeah. just weren't there. Yeah. Have you seen any interest from the philanthropy side? People that are interested in innovative ways where you could close that gap and catch kids up because I can't imagine that it's a, it's just an intractable problem that can never be solved. Um, and you seem like an innovator, you know, who is willing to take on tough challenges. Um, but have you seen any interest or or any ideas? Yeah, there's, there's absolutely philanthropic interest. But if we knew how to do that, we wouldn't be we wouldn't have kind of the the literacy issues we have across all demographics in this country. I mean, it's truly point. we don't we just don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, or or we know how to do it, but somehow we've you know, I know people that would say that any, any parent could teach their kid to read, um, if given the right tools that it should be something. And so it's so, you know, are we perhaps 
are we handing that over to the professionals, um, which is understandable, but if they're not delivering, then we, we clearly need a different strategy. And so, yeah, I'd love to see some innovation. It's just, it's such that skill. If you, if you can't learn how to read, how, you know, it, it, it's limiting. Well, it's the core of everything. It is. I mean, so, so in terms of future growth, you said that um, it will not happen within New York uh, because of the current cap. So where, where are you looking to expand and, and what do you see Seed and Education Partners doing over the next three to five years? We're fortunate to have one charter schools from um, the state of Texas and, right. also from, and also from the state of New Jersey. Um, so we are opening schools in both geographies next year. Um, so we're on the path to doing that. Um, in Texas, we're starting in the Rio Grande Valley, which has the, hot, the most concentrated demographic of Catholics in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, an education system that could use some, some competition and innovation. Um, and then in New Jersey, it's about a 30-minute drive from our Bronx schools um, in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, New Jersey has been fascinating for us. Um, they, um, they have kind of the most quote unquote progressive laws on issues of gender. And so our mission statement at Bria includes the phrase, um, young men and women. Mm -hmm. And during our application to, uh, to New Jersey, um, the state said, well, we'd like you to consider changing your mission statement. And wow. Wait, and wait, wait, not- let me just say, we, we, is that, was that really a, we'd like you to consider or something a little stronger as in. So we, you we, we yeah, you need to, or, <laughs> or else they, they don't have the legal authority. I mean, we've got some good legal counsel on this. They don't have the legal authority to require us to do this, but they don't, we, what we have in New Jersey, the way that it works is you get a conditional approval and then you have to check off a bunch of boxes, um, to get full approval. And so, um, you know, they, they explicitly told us, look, we don't have the authority to make you do this, but we strongly recommend it. And they sent us their guidance and, you know, we had a, a pretty robust conversation at the board level, at both the Seton board level and at the, the school board level, because we have separate entities. We have a school board and, and then, and then the, the, the Seton board. And we just decided, no, we're not going to do that. We had worked really closely with families to craft this mission statement. We weren't planning on changing the mission statement for our, our, our New York schools. Um, and we do believe in a gender binary. So, um, you know, if our schools are about helping children pursue truth, beauty, and goodness, we can't be lying to them about the truth of their, of their, of their sex. Well, and, and so, it would, sounds yeah. like it gets into first amendment territory if they're it does. And, and, to adopt and that speech. We are, our, our legal counsel has said they, they, they can't require you to do this. It would be illegal for them. But the fact of the matter is, they can come up with any excuse they want if they don't want you to be approved and just not approve you. I mean, we were the first new charter school to get approved in the state of New Jersey in five years. And so, and it's not because there weren't good applicants. It's because you have a Democrat governor who is pandering to the teachers union and um, didn't want to, to grow charter schools and 
you know, we, we happened to have some, some good friends of this governor and this governor backed us and we're grateful for that. Um, but this, you know, we're, we're also struggling now in New Jersey. You know, we've been in conversations um, really recently about the fact that you are not allowed to tell parents if their child wants to socially transition at school. And one of our principles, and we've kind of have this, this detailed kind of document of, of principles, is that parents are the primary educators of their children. And I, I can't imagine as a mom of, of two children, uh, you know, my daughter, my 10 year old was asked to announce her pronouns this summer and I um, called the summer camp and said, you know, she's really young, this is inappropriate. She was really uncomfortable. And, you know, they said, well, we, we wanna have an inclusive environment. I said, well, she's Christian and she didn't feel included. And they kind of were silent. They, they kind of were dumbfounded. They didn't, they didn't know what to say to that. Um, and they said, okay, we'll talk to the teacher. And so it, it wasn't, it stopped being an issue. Mm -hmm. um, but can you imagine being a parent and your child is being called a different name, a different gender at school, which is supposed to be a place of deep trust. Right. Then they are, then they are at home. And, and, and it's the speed with which that we've arrived at this moment yes. too. That is just, it's breathtaking. I don't know how the hell it happened so quickly. It's, it's kind of, but I have to say, um, we have to get local about this. People are so afraid of being called a bigot. And, you know, when I was, when I was at Berkeley, some of the work that I did kind of most deeply when I was a, a resident assistant was around homophobia. I, I, you know, I was the person who would come home and tell my, my brothers, you know, don't say that's gay. You know, you're dehumanizing those people. We're Catholic. How can you, how can you talk like that? Um, and I, I actually think, you know, not more than 90% of children, if they're not, if their dysphoria, if their gender dysphoria is not reinforced, um, it will reconcile. And a good chunk of those children will, will identify as gay. And so I, I, I do, I don't think parents understand what a threat this is. I mean, the number of girls um, saying that they are identifying as boys is, is 500% higher now than it was five years ago. Think about that. Yeah, no, we've done we've done episodes on on gender dysphoria, and and that you're exactly right. I mean, the, it's a social contagion, and it's yes. being pushed by schools among others, which is very very scary. And it's really teachers more than anything else. It's kind of this white liberal female teacher feeling like they are protecting the child by encouraging right. this, and they don't have any medical degree, right? No. no, teachers have become counselors, which is yes. not what they were trained to do. No, obviously. not at all. But I mean, last last question. You know, you're you're obviously have enormous educational experience here. You're also a mom, and we're talking about kind of these issues of of you know parents, parents' rights, parents' responsibilities. You know, and what what can parents do to help you and people like you who are you know trying to help them and help their kids with new schools but are getting obviously there are roadblocks from states like New Jersey or New York and doing this what you know what can parents do 
um, they need to be vocal at the local level. Um, they need to be advocates for their children. They need to say, they need to use common sense and say when things, things don't, don't make sense to them. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I never thought I was going to be involved in my own children's school, but I've, I've spoken at three board meetings now and, um, and I've volunteered. I'm kind of a little bit stealth here. I volunteered to be on the diversity and equity committee because I, I, I want them to do that the right way. There is a right way to do that. And there's a wrong way to do that. And um, I, I didn't talk just if I could briefly, you know, once we launched our, um, our blended learning initiative, we came to the conclusion that we really wanted to have, so we were partnering with existing schools and kind of turning them around. And we didn't have the authority to hire and fire teachers or hire and fire leadership. And we came to the conclusion that while we could drive results, it was really hard to sustain those results without that authority. And so year one of the pandemic, we opened our very first Catholic school. And we did this in Ohio, Cincinnati, in an underserved community of Price Hill. Um, and we decided, we made the decision to open the school every day in person for every child. Um, in order to do that, we, we kind of really reduced the number of kids we allowed to go to the school in year one. And that school has had our strong, I mean, we have very strong academic results, but that school had by far our strongest academic results of all of our schools. And we are working to grow that model, not only in Ohio, where there's a, a voucher um, for, for um, a means tested voucher for children, but we're also working to expand that in Florida. So we are looking at in a couple of years opening in the Diocese of Palm Beach. Um, and then we'll be looking, um, you know, if, if all goes well in Palm Beach, looking to grow in Miami. Terrific. Well, I'm down here now in Palm Beach County. <laughs> so if you're ever down here, <laughs> let me know. Absolutely. I, I applaud what you're doing. Obviously, not just in New York, but but in Florida and nationwide. And uh, we need a lot more people like you to help. We need parents. Listen, if every parents. parent, if every parent, you know, said, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to let yeah. you transition yeah. our child. I, it would be different if yeah. they said we know. we're going to This vote. is what we talk about every every episode, pretty much. How right. can you get parents to, to join the fight and speak up? Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and your successes and, uh, and joining us on Take Back Our Schools. Thank you for having me and thank you for what you're doing. We covered a lot. We, sh we sure did. What a powerhouse. Uh, I love her spirit. I love, I love her experience. I loved hearing about the yeah. Teach for America years. I think that really informed what she's doing now. And I just having been on those front lines, I, I bet she goes back to that every day, but um, it really sounds like she has taken that and then made it into a model that is benefiting kids, but she's also on the front lines really of, of this, you know, call it whatever you want, political, racial, such, you know, gender, sexual politics that are being forced on oh, kids. Well. Yeah. Call it woke. woke, schools, woke schools. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the woke fight. Um, so which, which is great to see, you know, I, I think we need, we need more Stephanie's out there in addition it's hard. to parents. I mean, Cause we, we, you know, I, we talked a little bit about this with Robert Pondicio, you know, a few mm -hmm. episodes ago, um, a lot of the charter schools, especially the big charter networks have adopted the social justice orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and, uh, and then there's the issue of teachers, of, you know, almost every teacher, almost every young teacher that is graduating from an education school is being indoctrinated in this. So it's not without its challenges, even if you have someone so strong like Stephanie to spearhead these new schools, you still have all these hurdles, state regulatory hurdles that are mandating, you know, pronouns and stuff like that. Um, teachers that want to teach, you know, the racial justice stuff, even if it's not coming top down. So it's not easy. And we need parents. I think what Stephanie said, we need parents to help. Absolutely. Well, wouldn't it be fun to see, let's say one of these teachers who is bought into this woke um, kind of approach. I would love to see them debate or address a room full of parents of perhaps, they don't know, one of these cats, but, but explain why their worldview is better for these kids versus being taught, you know, rigorous academics and math reading, you know, all of the, all of the basics. I would just really love to see somebody even try to, we should have to, um, we should try to get someone to come on. I don't know if anyone would. Probably not, but it just, you know, and quite frankly, I think these parents, if they challenge the teachers, I mean, I just think, I do think some of the, some of that um, exuberance would abate because I think that at the end of the day, um, it does not benefit these kids. And I'd like to think that deep, deep down, they do know this, even though they think they're doing the right thing, that they do understand that if a kid exits their class, not being able to read or do math at grade level, they are not yeah. doing their job. And it's not somebody else's fault. And it's not the fault of the system or whatever it is that, I that think they think is, right. at, is at play. But I, I do think there are these young ideological teachers that really view social justice as more important than reading. And then it's I think from so arrogant, I mean, it's just, so well, arrogant. it's wrong. I mean, in so many different ways. Um, and then, and then, you know, the conspiracy tin, tinfoil hat in me, which I don't, doesn't come out that often, you know, says <laughs> you that don't look, have it on if right you want now, to, at least <laughs> if you want to, if you want to indoctrinate students, the less knowledgeable, the less they're able to read as possible, the easier it is to indoctrinate them. And, and I think there's some of that coming, you know, top down. Well, I am glad that uh, Seton Education Partners are not producing students like that, um, and they are focusing on the basics, and they are doing their best to ensure that that high-quality, rigorous academics remain in the classroom, and it's not, you know, that, that that's not at the expense of these just radically progressive ideas, you know, permeating the classroom. And the faith, you know, th- that they were able to do this with the faith-based component is interesting. You know, still use public dollars, still do, you know, academics during the school day and then have this as a core component for the families that want it. And not every family wants it, obviously, but it's but it's an interesting it's an interesting model. That is that's kind of a hybrid of, you know, Catholics who have been known, you know, decades for for being education advocates and then combining that with public funding um, and in particularly in these underserved areas uh, where the options are sparse and um, it's just great that, that they are giving a choice uh, to, to these kids. Agreed. I think we'll close. So with that, thanks again for listening. Um, and if you join, enjoyed the show, just please share it, give us a positive review and do please join us again. So on behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, it's Beth Dealey here, and we will be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.